welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. So, a few quick announcements before we get to today's episode. Firstly, I'm very excited to announce that the podcast is no longer a solo project. I've just hired, thanks to the generous support of Patreons, I've just been able to hire a paid intern. His name's Cameron, and he's going to be joining me to help continue bringing you great content. He's going to be working with me on guest research, design, and we're going to be creating a store with some merchandise for the podcast over maybe the next month or so. So I added a section to the website with Cameron's uh, bio on it under the About section, so please do go check that out. Next up, I owe all of you an episode. So I didn't get an episode out last week. I thought I was going to be able to get the fourth part of Ideologies of the Ancients out, and I just I didn't find the time that I thought um, I would have for it. And these, these like, bigger episodes of solo series are, like, dozens of hours of work, um, which I love doing, but I just thought I'd find the time, and I didn't. So I'm going to get this episode out this week, which is what I always had scheduled, and then hopefully over the next few days, but at some point, essentially, I owe you that uh, fourth part of Ideologies of the Ancients, and I'll just release it when it's done and when I'm happy with it. So that's coming up. Um, Talking about other content, I was recently on Ian Dunt's uh, new podcast, The Bunker. I talked about the politics of the COVID crisis, which I think I'm probably not going to cover on this podcast. So if you want to hear my thoughts on that, uh, please do go ahead and check that out. There's also some content on the YouTube channel that isn't available just on the regular podcast feed, so I've got another of my new media roundtables out, which was a a pretty good fun discussion, and there's going to be more YouTube-exclusive content to come. So if you want to check that out, um, subscribe to the YouTube channel associated with the podcast. Okay, those are my announcements. Let's get straight to today's episode, in which I'm going to be discussing um, alternate to alternate theories of democracy to the representative model. My guest today is Professor Elaine Landemar. She's a associate professor of political science at Yale University. Um, she's a tenured political theorist interested in democratic theory, enlightenment thinkers, political epistemology, constitutional theory, and the philosophy of the social sciences. Her book, Democratic Reason, was awarded the 2015 David and Lane Spritz Prize for the best book in liberal and stroke or democratic theory published two years earlier. Her new book, Open Democracy, Reinventing Popular Rule for the 21st Century will be out in fall 2020 with Princeton University Press, and in it she imagines what genuine democratic representation means and how we can open up our narrowly uh, electoral institutions to ordinary citizens. Um, So we talk about that, and I also talk a little bit about some of the work I've done with alternate um, conceptions of democracy. So the work I'm referring to there, which I reference in this interview, is my Machiavelli series and um, the episode I did on the politics of humiliation 
they're all in uh, Season 3, if you're interested in that and want to go back and check those out. Apart from that, let's get straight to it. It is my absolute pleasure to bring you my conversation uh, with Professor Elaine Landemore. I am joined today by Professor Elaine Landemore. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So just to start with, um, how do you um, think about what you do? Obviously, you're a professor, but what are the issues that you like to read and teach and write and think about? Right. So I'm a political philosopher who teaches uh, the history of political philosophy, democratic theory, also political epistemology, which, which is this new subfield of uh, the, the intersection of uh, political science and, and philosophy. And I'm also interested in the philosophy of social science. Uh, and in my, my research in, in political theory is, has been for the best uh, year on the question um, of the meaning and value of democracy and the best ways to, to institutionalize democracy. Uh, in political epistemology, I'm trying to figure out how political institutions and agents uh, and actors use and produce knowledge that's rel- relative to, to political issues. And I also, I, I suppose, because I, I, I am a political philosopher, but, philosopher, but I'm in a, in a political science department, and, and I guess some of my work counts as empirical political science uh, as well. I did a, a form of comparative politics by studying and collecting data on, on empirical processes like the crowdsourced constitutional process of 2010, um, a Finnish uh, crowdsourcing experiment in 2012-13. And right now, I'm still in the midst of um, following the, the fascinating experiments, the del- deliberative uh, experiments that have uh, that, that are taking place in France. So it started with the Great National Debate in 2019, continued with um, a Citizens' uh, a Convention on Climate Change that is still going on. And it looks like um, there, will, there is more to come, actually, in France. very exciting time. The, some parliamentarians have decided that they want to prepare the, the post-coronavirus world. And so they've launched a platform, an online platform, where they want to gather the input of the French people about the kind of economy, the kind of society they want to build later. So, so, so I, I'm also doing that, a lot of uh, uh, empirical work and, and field work, you might say. So I think the first half of the interview is just going to be talking through some of the stuff we just mentioned. Um, Can we start with um, democracy? You said sort of the meaning of democracy. What is that? I've heard like a bunch of definitions, both as sort of a descriptive, you know, this is what the word has meaned, and as like a normative, this is what it ought to mean. Do you have a sort of starting place with... um, how you think about what a democracy is before we even get to like what could it be or what should it be yes so i so i am not going to be terribly original i I think of democracy as a regime form in which the people rule meaning all of the people 
us with just a few or one person. Uh, and once you've said that, so you, you, you know, it's only the beginning. And, and I think you, once you've said very basic thing, you can approach the in two ways, uh, as a way of life in a Deweyan sense, so John Dewey had this like um, holistic uh, uh, comprehension of what democracy meant. It's a very expensive meaning. A vision of democracy like that includes a theory of the good life, uh, a, a set of ethical guidelines for living well together. Um, so it has it has the institutional dimension, but it also has the moral, economic, psychological dimensions. And for example, it, it would include a, a theory of civic virtue and not just the mechanism of decision-making. But you can also approach democracy another way, narrower, practical way, as a, where you define it as a, as a tool, a, a set of decision procedures or a method for reaching collective decisions about the common good. And, and if you approach it that way, then it's characteristic compared to non-democratic decision procedures that it's inclusive and egalitarian, again, by contrast with systems that are exclusionary and egalitarian, like uh, an oligarchy or, or a monarchy or, or an autocracy. And in that approach, you, you bracket the ethical, economic, social, and psychological conditions because it's something that you hope already exists or, or, or maybe generated uh, ultimately by those procedures. And I think both approaches are, are valid and needed and, in fact, complementary. In my work so far, I have tended to uh, approach democracy the second way, as a, as a tool and a set of decision procedures that focused on the, on, the, on the narrower meaning. But my hope is that at some point I'd like to, um, to work my way towards the, the fuller, more holistic approach to understand how the institutions connect with, you know, the virtues, the psychology, the economy, all these other dimensions. So democracy is a way of life, if you want. One thing I've been really interested in is trying to think outside of my own sort of liberal intuitions and biases to think about, you know, can we think about what a non-liberal democracy that is nonetheless egalitarian what that might look like. Can we start imagining democracy outside of sort of um, perhaps the the overly narrow constraints of the sort of procedural liberalism which we have today? Would that set you up to talk about your work with open democracy? Uh, well, I, I, I kind of resist the, the, the sort of uh, idea that I... Uh, my, Open democracy is illiberal, absolutely not. I, I, uh, I think that I would prefer it for it to be liberal. But all I'm saying is that if you start from the historical construct we call representative democracy, which is, you know, which has been built on, on yeah, historical liberalism sort of came first, if you want, then uh, you end up with a really constant definition of democracy, which in some ways is a lot more oligarchic than truly democratic. Right. Um, so I tend to indeed go back as a, as a more inspiring model in some ways, or at least a, a model that opens up avenues for, for fresh thinking, and to go back to classical Athens because it, it, it started from uh, an idea of equal power, um, equal right to speak in public, um, and, and more importantly even for me, equal right to uh, 
or equal chance to play the, the role of a representative. Um, and I know we tend to think of a, 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 you know classical Athens uh, as as a, a direct form of democracy. In my view, it had a lot of representative uh, uh, elements, including this body called the the Council of Five Hundred, where uh, you know, you had 500 randomly selected uh, citizens who set the agenda for the demos, for the open assemblies. And, um, and, and that, to me, seems closer to the ideal of uh, power of the people than what we call a representative democracy, where you only have a, a small fraction of the population which really has a chance to exercise power, right? And these are the people who have the money, the connections, the charisma to become elected in competitive elections after being, you know, selected through, a, you know, the party system. And, and, and that, if you look at it uh, with some... some, some you realize that it's not a system in which you and I, or, and even less so, you know, people with even less... Uh, Capital, social capital, and education, and, and connections, and money uh, can actually succeed in reaching the center of power. You know, um, to make it to to the American Congress, you have to be a millionaire. You have to be preferably white. You have to so so. There's a sense in which systems are are too off and 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 still too inegalitarian to, to truly qualify as as um, as democracies, in my view now. So that's why I, I like the the Athenian model, and I tend to go back to it to to imagine what what it could look like if we could reinvent it from scratch. And what I mean from scratch, it's like less constrained by the oligarchic slash and I would say liberal assumption that that prevailed in the 18th century. So. so yeah, no, no, that's really clarifying. Um, so in other words, um, I set myself, I did a little bit of work in some of my solo podcasts on like a truly illiberal democracy, just because I thought it would be something interesting to think about. You're not quite taking it to that step. You're saying, what if we reverse the assumption about what is prior and say that democracy is historically prior and perhaps in our ethical thinking should be prior? And instead of saying we want to build a liberal world order and within it it would be nice to have democracy, we say we want to build a democratic structural system, and within which we would like to maintain um, liberal, certain liberal protections. Yes, that's right, because I, in a way, the liberal thinking tends to start from um, uh, restrictions on, on uh, majority rule, restrictions on power, uh, you know, promotion of individual rights, but sometimes at the expense of um, uh, majoritarian decision-making and and with the result that it empowers small minorities in the guise of preserving individual rights. So, so it's been it's been a, a, a double-edged um, legacy, if you want. On the one hand, liberalism was born as a as a, as a theory that that um, you know whose aim was to to uh, minimize the, the infringement of government on individual rights. But at the same time, it, it's also set up the whole thinking about power as a, in, in somewhat, 
undemocratic, I mean, it's not, not necessarily undemocratic, but a counter-majoritarian uh, elections, which to some, to some degree, if you think that majority rule is a central, central element of, of democracy, then, then it, it, it has its problems. So you see it in... Um, in, in you know this fear of the tyranny of the majority that that oriented it so much the debates are around uh, uh, the American Constitution. Um, so I, I'm not my own model is absolutely not illiberal in the sense that um, you know I, I would want to to, first, to promote an illiberal democracy. Absolutely not. I think that. But my goal is to generate some of the good aspects of liberalism endogenously. If at all possible, um, if at all possible, because it, it, I mean, it might not be entirely possible, but from within a democratic setup set or, or framework first, and only constrain democracy uh, as it becomes apparent that it, it's not, uh, it's not, it's going to make mistakes and violate rights. And so, if you only, and I'm not saying that empirically, I'm saying that logically in my in my head as I'm constru- constructing model, I'm trying to see how far can we go with a democratic model. Uh, before we have to start uh, turning the screws and 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 you know constraining the majoritarian uh, will and uh, preventing people from deliberating about everything, uh, before we we decide to exclude some people because they are they are too racist or too this or too that. So I just want to try to see what a pure model of democracy looks like before it becomes so undesirable that we need to to sort of constrain it with a liberal or constitutional apparatus of sorts. Whereas we tend to look at it the other way. We first build all the 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 safeguards, and then if there's any room left, we we are we authorize you know popular rule. And I I just think that um, it's interesting to think the other way around. Right. So it's it's a question about what's prior. I mean, I'll I'll make one final point before we move on to the empirical stuff, which is we've been talking about um the potential tensions between um liberalism and democracy. I think there's also the um, third piece, which is um, capitalism and the logic of capital. So when we talk about rights, we have to be aware of the interaction of liberalism and capitalism. So the phrase tyranny of the majority doesn't come from the idea that, like, the majority white people are going to oppress black people, because a lot of the people at the founding of the Republic were fine with that. Um, In James Madison's words, the function of our government should be to protect the minority of the opulent against the majority. Um, And I I just interviewed uh, Samuel Moyne, who argues, I think quite convincingly, that rights discourse, when it's come about, has tended, not always of course, but tended to be more sided with that sort of minority rights, in terms of protecting the minority of the affluent, against more populist demands. Um, and so I think there's that other element with rights you have to look at, just like empirically, is it's not just about the interaction of liberal appeals to individual rights versus um, democratic appeals to um, popular sovereignty or whatever. There's that third piece, which is the logic of capitalism, which you have to play into your story as well when you look at um how these questions of tyranny of the majority and rights have been utilized in actual political discourse. Yes, that's right. So, so, and it's interesting to see the, the so I'm, I'm interested in, uh, in questions of democracy in the workplace or democracy firms, 
And I've, so I've looked at the at the parallel between the discourse about uh, who has a right to to vote in a country versus who has a a right to a say in a company, and it's it's strikingly similar actually. The the and I agree with someone's description that the the ideology of rights it was you know in part protecting the sanctity of human, I mean, body integrity and, and, and liberty from the government. It was also about securing the protection of property through the state, actually. So, so and, and of course, the, the property was um, uh, the, that of, of like uh, wealthy people uh, who occasionally owned other people. And, and, um, and that was at a time when we distributed rights to vote on the basis of how much you owned uh, and whether or not you were a stakeholder in your own country. And people who had uh, no property didn't qualify. Uh, and it, it, I suppose there's a parallel with what's going on in the, in the justification for, you know, shareholder uh, dictatorship, as uh, Elizabeth Anderson would say, I guess, um, where it's only the people who have capital who technically own the firm, although I, I don't like that vocabulary, I actually think it's uh, inaccurate, but they, they own shares of the firm, and that comes with a number of uh, control rights. Uh, and they have a say about, you know, the business strategy, about the, the, the selection of um, the people on the boards of director, of, of the board of directors, whereas the workers who have no such shares and simply contribute to the firms through their labor and their, 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 their persons, they have no say. Uh, so they are, they are not considered stakeholders of the firm the same way that the property less back then in the 18th century or before were, were not considered stakeholders of, of their own country. So so I feel like there are a lot more reasons to conduct these parallels than, than uh, we tend to think. I think so. And then if we go to, like, the final step of the triangle, so we talked about liberalism, sorry, democracy and liberalism, we talked about liberalism and capitalism, the final side of the triangle would be um, capitalism and democracy. And there, I think, there's um, a huge contradiction. And you mentioned Elizabeth Anderson, who I will um, unapologetically admit to being a huge uh, fanboy of. I love her book, uh, Private Government, and I've had her on the podcast um, a, a couple of times. It is There's an obvious contradiction between the idea of power being... Let's, let's even just be quite mild about it and say power being in some sense responsive to those who it's exercised over, and the way that the majority of institutions are actually structured in a contemporary capitalist economy. There's nothing we can do to influence or challenge, not really, the power of Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos or someone like that. And people will sort of say, well, you're free to... Um, leave a company whenever you want, it's just sort of like a voluntary association. But I think that's just a, a little naive in that companies have enforcement mechanisms that, while they might not be as strong as states, they can't imprison you, they can still 
deprive you of your economic livelihood in the United States. Unfortunately, they can deprive you of your health care. And so this idea that it's a, just a voluntary association, I think, ignores the really quite strong enforcement mechanisms those institutions have and ignores the operation of power within them. And I think there's an obvious contradiction there that even if you know, the average person wouldn't express it in exactly those terms. They feel quite keenly, and they don't like, and I think are quite upset by, frankly. Right. So, so I just want to um, react first by saying that, you know, by capitalism, we also need to clarify what we mean. And often it's, it's, uh, it's confused with, um, um, you know, the existence of free markets. And, I, and I, I don't think that's the same thing. I think free markets are one thing. In general, I think it's a good thing. But capitalism is, is to me, much more about who owns the, the means of production. And so, so in, in capitalism, it's people who invest capital and, and uh, you know, um, have shares of firms. And we give them all, all the, the, the property rights system gives them all the power. And it, it might have been fine. It can be fine under some very specific circumstances, maybe the, you know, the, the, the immediate aftermath of, the, of World War II when uh, we lived in, in pre-globalized times and uh, governments, popular governments were back in power and, and they had a, the, the, the means to tax heavily, to redefine property rights in more constraining ways and and uh, inequalities were not so large and, and companies were not, again, so, so huge and globalized. And so so there was a way in which democracy at the na- national level could still constrain and contain and control capitalists, right? This, like, small window of that, that the Piketty also documents where, you know, the, the seems, you know, the, the, the tendency of... Uh, the, the global tendency of, of, of inequalities to, to, to rise were just sort of uh, was reversed. And, but the problem is like now we live in an age where these co- conditions don't um, exist anymore. And so we're, we're seeing the, the conflict between rule or not rule, but a system that um, is meant to benefit um, private ownership of the means of production and, and, and capital owners uh, the tension with 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 democracy because democracy operates at the at the national level so far and capitalism operates at the global level and and it's escaping all the the constraint that were put in place um, at some point in history but are now completely non-operational anymore so that's why we need to reinvent because you, you could say look uh, it's fine to have capitalists you have strong unions and if you have heavily you know regulated markets and and a state that can, you know, that can interfere and and ensure a, a safety net for people who lose their jobs and maybe there's uh, universal health care so people are not dependent on the on the healthcare provided by the companies or maybe there's a universal basic income and then and then all of that is fine and capitalism is, is uh, maybe uh, you know desirable form of organization of the economy but all of these things are are non-existent so so we're we're going back to the the age of the robber barons and anything's possible and 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 you really see the difference between i mean there's still some margin for improvement and you and you see it in the difference between the way um european countries 
uh, are reacting to this coronavirus uh, crisis versus the U.S. So in, in France, for example, the government has decided to basically pay for everything. I mean, they're going to... Uh, they've asked employers to keep their employees on the payrolls and they're just going to, you know, subsidize the companies until the I guess. Uh, they have, they've, uh, they're renting hotel rooms that... Uh, they can be used for for coronavirus patients or or nurses who need a place to stay between shifts. I mean, so so you know, hugely interventionist um, uh, way of dealing with it. And in the U.S., it's like, well, firms are are firing en masse, and 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 the state is only picking up part of the tab and and not that much. So so there are different kinds of capitalism, and there are different ways of trying to control it. And it's just that we're in a so far, the, the trend was towards less and less control and less and less compatibility with truly democratic control. Yeah, so I think that's such a great point, and I'm just going to make um, a couple of points to build on that, and then feel free to take me up on any of them, or we can move on to the next bit. But um, I think you could separate out at least two sort of conceptions of capitalism. One we could just call currently existing capitalism, which would probably be very well typified in the US, a kind of big corporate consolidation capitalism. And the other, I guess, you could call a kind of early idealized capitalism, the capitalism of sort of um, the Walrassian equilibrium and perfect competition, in which you have big open free marketplaces, many buyers, many sellers, highly decentralized power. Um, And like, I'm not a pure communist. There's some people who say anything to do with markets is evil. Whereas I actually think um, that 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 quite primitive, shall we say, or just traditional, maybe, conception of capitalism is, at least on its own merits, quite attractive and could be compatible with the sorts of values that both the liberal and the democrat want to promote. Because I think it's in Adam Smith where he talks about markets as a tool of democratic freedom, and he says, I'm paraphrasing here, but if you have the choice between many masters, you have no master. And so that's quite a, like, Republican conception of freedom. It's also a tool of quite a sort of liberal conception of freedom, as freedom as autonomy. If you have truly open markets where anyone can go and start a business and anyone can go and buy for anyone, that furthers the sort of individuality and autonomy and development in a sort of John Stuart Mill sense of the individual. So that vision of capitalism... I think could be made compatible with both the values of democracy and the values of liberalism. I think there's a good argument that the sort of um, currently existing capitalism probably can't be made compatible with either, because on the democratic front, as we've discussed, you have incredible concentrations of power with really no ability to challenge them. And even on the liberal front, when you look at individual autonomy and choice-making, these are very heavily curtailed by being in an economy where you have to do a specific job to survive, you have to do exactly what you're told, and if you query any order, you can be um, uh, uh, fired on, on the spot. So there's, there's that distinction, and I think to track it back to the um, thing you said at the beginning, it would be a question for me of what is prior. So I think you could have 
a good debate, and it's a question I'm very interested in, of, like, what should be prior, liberalism or democracy? And I could see arguments on both sides of that, but I think definitely both of them should be prior to capitalism. And unfortunately, in a lot of um, contemporary right-wing discourse in the United States, we've got to the place where the logic of the market is prior. And, like, whatever the market, in big scare quotes, does, that's something that liberalism and democracy have to work within. And I think Marx had it exactly right when he said the phantoms of their minds have got out of their hands. In other words, markets are a set of man-made institutions that we've built to promote other goods that, that we care about. And to the extent that they're delivering those goods, we should preserve them. And to the extent that they're not, we should challenge them and change them. But instead of seeing them as instrumental, we've gone to seeing them as intrinsic, as inherently justified, in a way that I think is destructive of both the sort of democratic freedom to make collective decisions and the sort of liberal freedom to, to um, lead your own life. I'll pause there. Yeah, no, oh, well, there, there's a lot there. Um, yeah, sure. Uh, uh, so let me react to a few things. So... so uh, one, uh, again, I think the definition of capitalism, it's, it's, it's endlessly controversial, in fact. But for me, it's, I don't think uh, I would associate capitalism uh, with free markets only. I think you can have socialism with free markets. You can have, uh, you, you know, free markets are one thing. And then the question is, who owns the means of production and who who's favored in a system of property rights? I think that's more how I see it. So, um, and and. About the priority of, of capitalism over democracy or liberalism, I, you know, it goes back to a fundamental disagreement I, I have had many times with libertarian thinkers where they, they want to natural, naturalize property rights. They tend to naturalize rights the way they naturalize markets. So so markets already existed and, uh, you know, it's, it's a sort of a, a mythical, fictional origin story where markets are prior to everything and everything goes well and then the state comes in and ruins things uh, when in fact i mean i think i think it's maybe they're co-evil as, as as habermas would say of democracy and liberalism but or democracy and conflicts but uh it's more the, the other way around that you know you 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 create markets through state institutions through legal system that you know need to be theorized, constructed, uh, maintained, and and all of that takes a centralized sort of you know entity that 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 looks a lot like a state and uh, or a central bureaucracy of some kind, and and then the question is well okay but who controls um, it and and that's where democracy becomes a very important question, and all of that to say that I think we should stop naturalizing, sacralizing property rights and be open to the possibility that for every society and every century and every set of existing conditions, there's probably an optimal definition of property rights. And right now, we don't have the optimal one. We've, we've defined property rights in such a way that they overly benefit a subset of uh, agents in the markets, which are capital owners, and they're destroying democracy in the, in, as a result. They're destroying the conditions for human flourishing, and, and we need to revisit that. But the problem is, like, the minute you start 
naturalizing rights and and then it becomes impossible to question their definition and and uh, and to change the, to evolve the system yes yeah, so there's two ways um I feel like we've gone down this road, but it's an interesting road. Um, there's two ways in which I find the libertarian claim really implausible. One is it's historically implausible. Markets were a creation of the state, right? That's just, that seems a fairly incontrovertible historic. There weren't markets in the state of nature, if there ever was such a thing, right? And, and of course, like you say, what property rights has meant has varied wildly throughout history and different civilizations and cultures and so on. I actually think the libertarians' claim is even more implausible than that, though, because they're not just committed to asserting a freestanding, deantic constraint on interfering with property. They're committed to asserting that that freestanding, deantic constraint overrides any other freestanding, deantic constraint. So there's, you know, even if we take a fairly deontological view of rights as, um, I'll take Cecile Farb, she says rights are recognition of fundamental interests. Well, okay, so maybe property's a fundamental interest, but so is welfare, so is security, so are a lot of things, you know, and those fundamental interests will sometimes conflict, so you're going to need sorting and balancing mechanisms between them. And the libertarians committed to not just saying that property rights exist as a freestanding constraint, but they override any other conceivable freestanding, deantic constraint. And I've never heard a remote... So even I'll grant you this natural rights thing, which I probably shouldn't grant you, but even granting you that... I don't get what conceivable argument or set of arguments could justify prioritising these property right claims over any other set of rights claims. I mean, I know Nozak has his sort of self-ownership argument, but I think that fails, and it obviously fails. So overall, I'm sort of left intellectually mystified by the libertarian conclusion. Yes, no, I agree, and and in fact, the, the we're so used to to what is. It's very, it's always very hard to envision how it could be otherwise. But a very good historical example of how we've come to reshuffle and redefine what we mean by um, property rights is uh, uh, the, the the example of Germany after World War Two with this Determination Act, where they decided to shift uh, power from capital to labor, basically, or they decided that by law, uh, the say on on uh, the board of uh, of directors of, of those companies of the German companies, and they in de facto um, created uh, equal representation on on the supervisory board of directors, and and that was in in violation of what we think is a natural right for capital owners to to call the shots in in the companies they supposedly own but they they in fact it's it's um it's a vocabulary we should stop using actually they don't own the company they own shares that come with certain rights and and often voting rights and and you can this is something that as a society we can decide to define differently we can decide that uh capital owners have a right to a dividend 
And that's it. And they could have no say on, on, on the, the governance of the firm. And we could decide that um, labor, in virtue of the interest they have in their jobs and the company that they may have uh, you know, uh, developed over, over decades, should have a, 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 a say, even, uh, even if they don't own it shares in the company. So we, we, another thing that I find often very confusing in those conversations is that we, we confuse the question of governance of the firm and the question of ownership of the, the, the firm, right? And you can, you, you, there are multiple ways to look at this. I mean, you could have um, uh, ownership by the workers, or you could have ownership by the state, or you could have uh, uh, a shared sort of system where capital, there are capital um, owners among, among the the capital investors and among the labor investors. Um, so, you, but, but the governance structure could also be across all those differences in ownership, very different. It could be uh, based on the classic uh, investor rule, or it could be based on, on a German model of Mietbestimmung, or it could be based on what my uh, colleague and occasional co-author Isabel Ferras uh, proposes as economic bicameralism, where you have, uh, on the model of what happened for states, a chamber for capital and a chamber for labor, and there's a system of veto, so one chamber cannot pass a decision without getting the approval of the other chamber, and so sort of joint uh, decision-making like that, or you could have something that along the lines of what I call open democracy would be uh, a company where it's ruled by randomly selected, uh, you know, stakeholders of the company. And, and among the stakeholders would, of course, feature the the laborers, but uh, that could be other stakeholders. I mean, so I think we, we I don't have the answers to, to any of the questions you asked, basically, but I think we, we need to be a lot more... Uh, open to, to, to the possibility that things could be different and we should have more imagination and, and, and question the status quo a lot more than we currently are. And I'm worried that after this you know, crisis of the COVID-19, everything will go back to normal. And when, in fact, we have a chance here to measure, aha, I mean, we already had a chance in 2008 for, you know, unfortunately, and it's not like anything changed, but like you see, you know, nurses and and doctors at the at the forefront of this crisis, they're risking their lives on a daily basis, and they are paid a lot, lot less than all these, you know, not to, to be too populist about it, but all these investment bankers and CEOs who are paid fortunes, but are, are going to like fire workers from their from their from their you know uh, houses in the Hamptons, and like how do we want to go back to a world that's so unjust? How how can we not rethink? Uh, the distribution of power in, in our society. There's, there's got to be more. That's why the market value really isn't, uh, cannot be the answer to everything. What's, uh, it, um, what's it Marx said? I've been quoting Marx a bit in this interview. Marx said um, to go to the slaughter is always the same sacrifice for the cow, but it doesn't mean that beef should have a constant market value. The idea being that the effort you put in to the economy and the goods you produce... There's no logical reason that should have a, a, a correlation with um, what the price that, that we reward that particular labor for is. Exactly. Well, it's the same that uh, Smith said about diamond and water, right? What's more useful and yet what has more value in the market? Um, that's not correlated at all. It's inversely correlated, if anything. And, and so and the problem for me is that I just don't see how we're going to... Well, we can... Res if you want, like, given that you have globalized 
capital fluxes and only democratic control at the local level. We cannot solve it through democracy if we continue to have a globalized world. So it could be that after the, the COVID-19 crisis, we we actually retreat, all of these countries retreat in, into the, you know, the, within the frontiers and we can recuperate some democratic control at that level, like the, the way I suppose the UK was hoping to do with Brexit. Or it could be, and I think that's, I don't know if it's feasible and it's probably a very brittle and dangerous solution and I'm not sure it's, I'm not sure it's, you know, doable, but we could go towards a more integrated world uh, where there's a, a more uni unified democratic governance at the global level and we would recuperate some control over capitalism and, and market forces there. Uh, you know, these are possible paths and I, I, I just don't know. Um, I mean, I think there are some things that we can do that would, if not get us quite to where we might want to be, would be meaningful improvements in terms of both individual and collective autonomy of workers, you know, within the sort of current integrated um, nation-state model. So just in the US context, I'm thinking, if nothing else, I would like to see unions strong again. You know, um, if nothing else, I would like to see some sorts of checks on the level of inequality we have. If nothing else, I would like to see a sort of um, antitrust legal regime that we, we, we have had in the United States in history that sort of checks or breaks up or manages the power of um, the largest firms. That might not be quite to a full democratic vision, but it would still be a meaningful improvement over what we have now. My problem comes in that I don't see how we get to even that more modest vision without a significant rejigging of our political system. Because in America, you know, it's not even as if we don't have open democracy. We don't even do representative democracy very well. Like, the ability of an electoral majority, at least on the federal level, to affect policy outcomes is basically non-existent right now. And I think that then becomes the problem of, like what structural things need to change in our politics to make it even possible for us to try and use the power of the state to affect some demo even modest democratization of our economic structures, you know? No, exactly. So, so I don't want to be too pessimistic about the US because it's a country that has you know, proven surprising over, uh, you know, Many years, so so it could it could revert itself and, and get better again. But the the you may know this article by uh, Martin Gillens and Benjamin Page uh, from 2014 on uh, testing theories of uh, uh, democracy, and uh, they found out that there's no uh, correlation between majoritarian preferences and policy outcomes once you control for the preferences of the richest 10% of uh, the population in the U.S. What does that mean? It means that, I mean, you know, I, it's, it's you know, again, it's, it's one study, and, and who knows if you know, you, you, many people interpret it differently, but one reading is that we're already in, a, in, a, in an oligarchy, uh, you know, of, of um, basically it's ruled by, by the rich, by the powerful businesses. And so 
it's not terribly surprising if you think of the power of lobbies, if you uh, look at the makeup of, of Congress. Uh, so if that's the case, you're right, there's not going to be uh, laws passed that make it easier for unions to exist, that curb the power of uh, corporations and protect, uh, you know, laborers and and so that's why I feel like unions, it's a solution from the past. And yes, it worked for a while, and but I think it stopped working. And, and I tend to think that they were never truly democratic to begin with, right? I mean, they were very opaque machines, uh, very undemocratic and non-transparent and sometimes corrupt uh, in terms of their internal organization. So I'm not sure... I'm not actually not sure it's better than, than not having unions for sure, but maybe we could look into, I think a, a more radical solution for me would be demo, democratization of the, of the governance firm. But that's okay. like, how, how do you get there? I, I don't know. You need um, people to organize, to create those firms and grow them to a point where they are competitive and attractive uh, and yet, still run along democratic lines uh, by by uh, you know the, the various stakeholders within them. And and in terms of the of the from here to there question, I really don't have much of a much of an answer. And I agree, we will have to pass. We will have to pass through a, a redemocratization of our political structures first. Yeah, and I mean, with respect to unions, I do support unions not as an optimal structure. Um, certainly unions have not been an unalloyed, unalloyed good, but corporations have not been an unalloyed good. And, you know, unions have been anti-democratic in practice. Corporations are anti-democratic in principle. Unions have been corrupt, but Corporate, I mean, corporate, corporate power has had labour organisers killed in recent United States history, you know? And at least when you had both of them, they sort of balanced each other out to a degree. So I'd support them as sort of like a, a realisable solution in a second best world. But the reason we don't have them anymore isn't primarily that people have stopped believing in them, it's that they've been legislated out of existence, which which brings you back to the political problem. Um, and um, just a few quick notes on that, and you can take me up on any of them. Um, the story you describe of rule by the rich is, is certainly true. I'd add two more elements to it, one of which is racism. So I think it's in that paper you cited. It might have been another one, but I think it's in that one. It's not just that the majority preference doesn't correlate with outcomes. The preference of black voters actually negatively correlates with outcomes in the United States. So if black people want something, it makes us less likely to do it. Um, and then the other is structures. So I think there is something about um, the incredible number of, like, checks and balances and veto players we have in the United States, which, by design and by historical operation, tended to have operated to protect minority capital rights, not minority rights in terms of, say, a, a, a racial majority. And, you know, it, it's kind of like this three-forked problem. If we wanted to get government working for us again, whatever that might mean, We'd have to do something about money in politics and inequality. We'd have to do something about race and racism. And we'd have to do something about constitutional design, such that electoral majorities, even in theory, can um, 
has to change, and when you sort of lay out the agenda like that, it's e and that's even just to achieve quite moderate reform. And when you lay out the agenda like that, it seems fairly insurmountable. I'm not hopeless, but I'm, I'm not sugarcoating the scale of the challenges either. So if I may add something, I agree with you, but I, I would say that we also need to rethink what we mean by democracy and whether, because as long as we keep calling rep representative democracy the system we have, we fail to see that the, the institutional principles are part of the problem. So when you talk about elections, to me, I, I've come to conclude that elections are part of the problem. When we delegate power to people chosen through elections, we basically uh, sort of... Uh, reinforce or entrench uh, domination by uh, economic elites because you know and, and it's, it's, it's I'm not saying it Aristotle was saying it uh, elections are an aristocratic oligarchic selection mechanism somehow even though we know that uh, we've come to equate electoral democracy with true authentic democracy you know or you know representative government I should say actually with a form of democracy. And I think we need to be a lot more uh, imaginative also about the way we select our uh, legislators and our leaders. And we, we, we don't see past elections because that's the way we've done things since the 18th century. But again, if you go way back in history, you look at um, classical Athens, they didn't have elections for uh, uh, the main political functions. They had elections for some administrators and some generals, but for the most part, they used another selection mechanism, which is truly authentically democratic because it's the only truly equalizing way of distributing power, which was random selection. And I'm a big fan and advocate of random selection politics, and, and my model of open democracy is precisely different from the, the historical model we know and call uh, we know as and call uh, representative democracy because it's it's kind of giving up on on, on elections as a as a defining feature of democracy and instead it goes back to this idea of equal access to power power needs to be open to us all and if we can't rule all at once because we just don't know how to deliberate in the millions then we need to find um, a way of distributing power or delegating it temporarily to a subset of us on on using a method that's truly egalitarian. And the only one is random selection. So there we go. I, I just place my, uh, my, my alternative model. You use the term open democracy. Do you just want to define that for us? Yes, absolutely. So open democracy is a, a system where uh, power is made as open as possible to all citizens. Uh, in contrast with electoral democracy or representative democracy, if you will, though I think this label is very misleading, where power is truly accessible only to people who can actually win elections. And by definition, this will be a narrow group of people with the right connections, charisma, psychological abilities. Um, and so you end up with a, a, a rift between the class of rulers and the, the mass of ordinary citizens. And my model of open democracy um, aims to give everyone an equal chance to rule at some point. Um, and that that means, you know, put it in a, in a slogan, an equal chance of representing uh, others. So one way to do that is by introducing the principle of representation via random selection. So you, you basically think of it as a 
one person, one lottery ticket, and you get a chance to be selected on your city council, on uh, you know the, the national legislature. I mean, at all levels of the polity, you can be called on to basically be part of a group of ruling citizens. Uh, and, and just to, to give you a sort of more detailed sense of what this looks like, I have five institutional principles for open democracy, which are not centered around periodic elections. One is the um, uh, existence of participatory rights that are widely distributed. Uh, the second one is um, uh, the deliberative principle, so that you know you do you, you reach decisions through deliberations primarily. Third one is majoritarian principle or rule, so that um, instead of a system where counter-majoritarian devices constrain majoritarian preferences all the time, on the contrary, the default is majority rule. The fourth is a uh, what I call democratic representation. And by that, I mean a system of representation where we all have an equal chance of, of being uh, you know, chosen. And so that means oftentimes uh, random selections or self-selection plays a role. And finally, um, the last principle, the fifth principle is transparency, meaning all of that needs to, to take place under constraints of, uh, of uh, accountability and transparency to the larger public. That's it. Yeah, 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 no, that's great. Um, and let, let's end on this, because I'm, I'm always going to sort of um, bring it back, back down to the practical, um, because I'm not a philosopher, I'm someone, I'm someone who sort of worked in applied politics, so I'm always going to bring us back into the real world. But there's this model in um, ancient Greek thought like Aristotle, uh, Polybius has it, and then again in some uh, Renaissance uh, democratic theory, like Machiavelli, of like the mixed state or the balanced constitution. And I think when we hear that, we think, oh, well, we've got separation of powers or whatever. And actually, no, it's not really about that. Like, the elected elites are just that. They're elites. That's a form of oligarchic power. And you can have a monarchy or a tyranny, rule of one, you can have an aristocracy or um, an oligarchy, rule of the few, and you can have a democracy, rule of the many. And democracy, again, like you say, doesn't mean um, in that sense. It means, no, no, the, the rule of the people is the rule of the people. We're going to put 10,000 people on a hill in Athens, you know what I mean? Um, and the idea that comes out of um, Aristotle, and Machiavelli does this quite well too, I think, picking up on that typology, is the best state would have a bit of all of them. So you can imagine a sort of idealised constitution that maybe has an elected upper chamber, and then a randomly selected lower chamber, and you've got sort of like a bicameral mechanism, like, I think that could be quite attractive. Now to just bring it through to the real world though, when I look at the contemporary United States, I see basically zero possibility for constitutional reform that would establish something like that, and what I see filling the role of the power of the people, as it were, is like protest movements and organising and sort of people marching in the streets or something. You know, I've heard you talk in another of your um, interviews about like the Gilets jaunes in... Um, in France, and that's kind of stepping up to fill the void. And um, they, they do have influence, and I think they are important, but they also don't have um, institutional recognition or, like, clear structuring mechanisms of their own for how they work. So I'm sort of wondering if you would follow me with that analysis thus far in seeing the power of the people in our current political systems 
not as represented so much by our input in elections, which, which I do think are important, um, but represented um, by these really sort of angry explosions of rage and, like, backlashes against the system that often peter out and accomplish nothing and sometimes push the governing elites in a particular direction. Right, so again, a lot here. So let me just react to something you said about Aristotle and the mixed constitution. So I know we 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 you know, we cite Aristotle and, and his wisdom on the matter, but actually, I actually agree more with Tocqueville on that one, that he, he thought that there's no such thing as a mixed constitution and you always end up with one principle overriding the others. And so there's only one... one uh, you know, when humor, as Machiavelli would say, that dominates, either the few or the many. And and typically, when we see mixed constitutions like the U.S., um, they tend to err, they tend to become, I mean, it's funny because Tocqueville thought they would uh, become too democratic and it would be the tyranny of the majority all around. And I actually think on that one, that prediction is actually wrong. We, I think we are much closer to, to an oligarchy than to a tyranny of the majority, in the US, at the federal level, at least. Um, and then in terms of your uh, reading of, of the, the real power of the people is with social movements these days, uh, yes, but I, I'm not sure it's reassuring. I'm not sure it's... Uh, no, I didn't, I didn't say it was. I, I, so I just like to mention as a perhaps more... Uh, because it's, it's, a, it's, it's a last resort sort of a mechanism to push back. Like, right, you're on the street, you're angry, you're, you're, and actually there's not that much of that going on in the US. You've got a lot more going on like that in France, where we have very, very strong social movements. Uh, but one example of um, ways that I think, uh, I mean, methods through which change could happen, and again, I, I can't predict the future, I'm not sure, And but we've had this Citizens' Convention on Climate Change in France since uh, October, and it's 150 randomly selected citizens uh, who have been charged by the executive, by President Macron, to come up with policy proposals and, and laws about how to basically curb our green gas emissions by 40% of the 1990s levels, uh, you know, by 2030. So it's a very specific kind of like technical almost, um, but ambitious uh, goal. I, mean, I should say that this the goal is also to... to to do that in a spirit of social justice. That's where the, the moral, social, political dimension uh, comes back. And, and they've been doing it with, with great um, courage and passion and, and uh, commitment for, for six months now. So it's been made incredibly complicated by the fact that we had, you know, um, very long strikes that uh, paralyzed the country and made it impossible for the convention to physically gather once. And then uh, their work has been sort of uh, delayed by the coronavirus crisis that again makes it impossible for them to physically gather. So it's incredibly complicated. But what's interesting is that um, these people are, are capable not just of, of setting an agenda for the country, which I thought initially was kind of like the only thing you could hope from a random group of ordinary citizens, they're actually delineating very specific laws with the help of experts. Experts are heavily present in the, in the design, but they're not calling the shots. Um, and, uh, and in fact, I think that who knows where this is going, but I think if this works and, and the government takes their proposal seriously, as, as they promised to do, and they promised to put their recommendation without filter to direct regulation, a referendum, or a parliamentary debate, or all of the above, uh, it could point the way towards a new form of democracy where 
Of course, it's not going to be as radical as my model because I'm, I'm, I have the freedom to invent anything from scratch and to theorize in the ideal. But uh, um, a mixed regime, I guess, uh, but a lot more democratic in my view because it would make room for a chamber of randomly selected citizens. So you could call it the House of the People or uh, you know the, the Chamber of the People or something like that, or, or the Chamber of the Future if you want to restrict their functions to you know planning for the future, but at least some role for ordinary citizens at the heart of the system. Because in our current systems, in our current so-called representative democracies, ordinary citizens are at the margin. They're always at the periphery. They, their only task is to vote once every four years. It's like, a, you know, a, a minuscule input in, in the system. And as I, as I said, mentioning this study by, uh, by Gillens and Page, actually, that I found the title again, it's called Testing, Testing Theories of American Politics, Elites, Interest Groups, and Average Citizens. If that's, that, you know, their account is true, then that input is worthless. It doesn't change anything anyway, right? So we need to move towards a system where there, the, the input of nurses and, and workers and, um, you know, all these people that, that make the country uh, run on, on a daily basis have actually a weight, an actual weight, and not just in the shape of a vote, which is incredibly poor in terms of uh, content and informational value, but in terms of a voice, meaning they have to be brought physically together or on Zoom if, you know, you can't, can't do it physically. Like some place, some place, virtual or real, where they can talk to each other educate each other, uh, agreement together and shape the, the agenda and the policies and laws for the country. Once we have that, and, and I think France is potentially pointing the way towards something like that, um, I think there's hope. And, and, and in the U.S., where I totally agree with you that the, reforming the Constitution is, is unthinkable at this point, because it's been naturalized into this great text that can be changed and, and the founders had, had, you know, had such wisdom that um, you cannot question it, at least at, at the state level. And I'm hoping that there is potential. I mean, the states are supposed to be these laboratories um, for policies and innovations and stuff. And so maybe some of them will take the lead. Maybe some of them will, you know, listen to this podcast and inspire to create a chamber of, um, you know, 150 or 300 randomly selected citizens and give them actual power. And at some point, constitutionalize that power in some ways. We're coming up on time. Can I just make a couple of quick points in, in closing and then you can respond? Yes. Um, cool. So um, just one thing I do want to say is, um, you know, as someone who's worked in politics, I still... I think it is not sufficient to just show up and vote. I don't want to say that my opinion is that, like, we shouldn't do it, because in the US case, like, government simply doesn't work because the Republican Party has decided that it shouldn't, and because of our system of checks and balances, they only need to hold, like, one veto-playing position to ensure that it doesn't work. So I do think there is, you know, to even get to, like, functioning representative democracy, we need to just get the Republicans out of power and keep them out of power. Now, that won't get us to the sort of more radical vision of where we want to go, but I do think that's just an important task in and of itself. So I'll just put that one out there. The second point is I want to say um, a good word for my... Um, beloved mixed constitution, in that um, I would actually take my mentor in this as neither Aristotle nor Tocqueville, 
um, but Machiavelli. And what Machiavelli doesn't have in his model, which is very intuitive to us, is this sort of liberal capitalist ideal of equilibrium. Or maybe you can see some prototype of that in Aristotle too, but this idea that the different parts will always sort of want to balance each other out. I think Machiavelli would say there will always be the power of elites. There will always be people who, through violence or politics or economics, will accrue power to themselves. And they won't give it up. And, you know, it, it's not surprising that the United States federal government is not particularly interested, or not at all interested, in this sort of open democracy, because that's just how powerful people operate. They're not interested in sharing power. And against that, you'll always get these populist backlashes and um, uprisings challenging that power. But in the in, in the, the sort of collision of those two forces, what you'll never get is equilibrium. Sometimes those forces will be put down, sometimes they will become strong enough that the elites have to cede meaningful concessions, and my ultimate model for that in US history would be the civil rights movement, where not everything was gained, but it was enough that like a seat at the table was granted, and that black Americans who had been completely shut out of our political structure were grafted onto it, at least um, formally. And when you do um, Machiavelli's history of Florence, he just repeats again and again these stories of popular uprisings, sort of riots we would call them today really, without any equilibrium point, without any higher goal ever being reached, without any sort of grand theory behind it all. It's just the fundamental mechanics of human nature to accrue power, and the powerless to fight back against it. And there's no balance. So in a sense, Tocqueville is right. One element will always sort of end up winning out. But I sort of read recent US history in much more that Machiavellian sense of a sort of process without any grand ordering or equilibrium point of the accrual of power and the backlash against it. And my instinctive, and I think to some degree normative sympathies, will always be with those in the backlash. And the question becomes, how do we empower them? How do we do what we can for them? And how do we translate that into real concessions from the power structure. So that might be a bit different to your model, but that's much more how I visualise the balanced constitution rather than something that's formal and equilibrium-seeking, something that's just a natural consequence of the desire of people to gain power and to want to use it to dominate others, and the natural reaction of the dominated to not want to be dominated. I'll, I'll pause there. Fantastic. No, I, I, it's, it's probably a very uh, accurate uh, empirical description of, of the reality of politics, but I, I, I think it's too, um, too, uh, almost too cynical for, for uh, I guess, for my, for my, for my taste or my, my ability to, to think, if you want, because it postulates in a way that that's what human nature is. You know, it's power after power and. Uh, and the best we can hope for in politics is a sort of modus vivendi where uh, we keep the various parties uh, in a temporary equilibrium, but we always have to work on the next thing that will ensure that uh, one side doesn't trample on, you know, on the other. And, and I tend to think that that makes it impossible to think in terms of deliberative uh, democracy or deliberative politics. Actually, it's you know, much more Habermasian. 
uh, perhaps ideal theoretical model of vision where, you know, you would hope that you can bring people together in a room and they come in not as advocates for particular interests, as lobbyists, as uh, uh, strategic voters, but they come in as as citizens uh, oriented towards something like the common good. And what they want is for the country to do well and for nurses to be paid, you know, a decent wage when they are fighting for their, for their patients in, you know, at the, at the, at the risk of their own lives. And, and uh, corrupt uh, CEOs who, or even not corrupt, but corrupt, you know, CEOs who just fire workers in times of crisis like that, when, when they've just been bailed out by the government, are, are punished. And, and, and surely there's at least a small space uh, for that vision of politics in, or there should be a small space for that vision of politics. Uh, otherwise, I just uh, I, I find it too too dispiriting, uh, if you will. No, I completely agree. And I, I put that forward, and I have put it forward, as one possible way amongst many of seeing the world. And I agree that it's dispiriting as shit, right? Like, it's not an optimistic vision. Um, I just, it does, like you say, it does seem to track with history quite well. So I put it forward as just a method of analysis, but not the final one, or the ultimate one. And certainly we have to at least hope for something better, right? But listen, I, I think you're right. It describes uh, politics at the macro level in most countries. But at least at the small scale, I've seen it. I've seen the Habermasian ideal uh, work. The Citizens' Convention on Climate Change, it is it. In large part, it is it. It's working. People come in. Um, they, they've created this incredible sense of solidarity across massive uh, ideological divides. Uh, they, they, they're a sample of friends. So they're basically, you know... Um, as as diverse as the larger French population, probably a little less because there are some self-selection bias and all that, but still, so you have people who, um, uh, you know, are uh, extremely conservative coming in contact with people who are extremely left-wing and they have to fight, to, to actually not fight it out, argue it out about do we coerce the French people into renovating their housing so that uh, the the, the, the we, we as a country emit less um, carbon because our, our you know we, we have better, better insulation or we work on, on on incentivizing that behavior and what works best and so so they, they have extremely uh, you know tense conversations sometimes but they they don't see each other as enemies the way I think um, the, the people in in at the, at the national level in electoral democracies see each other as enemies you know it's less tribal. And I think that, so it shows the way towards something different that maybe sounds too good to be true, but I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, I've seen it with my own eyes. It works. Do you think it would, I'm sorry, we're running way over time. I promised last question, but do, do you think it would work in the US where a defining feature of our politics, at least in the last generation or so, has been increasing tribalism? Because even, say, we could get something like this, um with partisan identities as strong as they were, would that sort of colour or bias the process? Or perhaps it would be a way of um, transcending those sorts of partisan divisions? I really don't know. 
again, I think it depends on how you bring people together. If you bring them on the basis of party identities and electoral mechanism, it won't work. We already know that. If you do it on the basis of random selection, actually, Jim Fishkin at Stanford University was the inventor of deliberative polling. So a system of, a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a model of a, of a citizen's convention that you bring over two days uh, with large, large numbers, like more like 300 to 500 people. And you bring them to deliberate about various issues. What you observe is a convergence, actually. You, you, get, you depolarize people. So he did that um, last September, I think in Texas, with uh, 300 randomly selected citizens from all over the U.S. There was a New York Times profile on that, if you go back to that uh, if you Google it, um, and you'll see that the findings are very clear. You have Republicans who become less opposed to uh, the legalization of uh, illegal immigrants. You have a uh, 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 left-wing, you know, potentially Bernie and Sanders types who become less favorable to a $15 minimum wage at the federal level because they understand the economic implications a lot better. So you, you see... Um, and I'm not saying it's it's always good, but when it, but there's a convergence, a consensus, and most importantly, people talk to each other in ways that are respectful. They come to all in it together, and and uh, as um, as human beings with a partial yet valuable view of of the issues and and the problems, as opposed to enemies that need to be uh, you know attacked. Uh, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm losing my words, but like attacked, criticized, um, uh, made to 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 not matter. You mm. know? Yeah, and there's something very similar in like, say, even just something like John Stuart Mill's representative government, where the value of democracy isn't just procedural; it's on educating people, making them feel citizens, making them feel part of a community, making them aware of how their concerns intersect with the concerns of others. When I'm in a good mood, I'm a John Stuart Mill liberal. When I'm in a bad mood, I'm a Machiavelli Republican, I think. <laughs> yeah, and on one last note of optimism, which yeah. is that, so, so the big question is always, will it scale, right? So, but I, I, I can tell you that already there's been, a, actually the, the OECD calls it a, a deliberative wave of, of experiments involving randomly uh, selected citizens, and they all sort of converge toward the same conclusion, it works. And the, 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 the sort of jewel in the crown of deliberative Democrats like me is that the Irish process of 2016, 2018, I don't know if you followed this, but they brought together, um, so basically the question was, what do we do about the criminalization of abortion in our question? And, and the, the parties were incapable of uh, dealing with the problem because they were aware that, you know, in the 21st century, this was a little bit absurd and medieval. And they thought, well, uh, we can't deal with it because, uh, you know, the, the party logic makes it impossible. It's the third rail of uh, Irish politics. So what we're going to do is use one of those uh, citizens' assemblies that seem to have worked um, uh, elsewhere in British Columbia and, and even in Ireland because they had done something somewhat similar, though more hybrid with uh, professional politicians involved in 2012 on, on gay rights. And they said, okay, a fully randomly selected uh, assembly of 99 citizens are going to debate over several weekends of what, you know, about whether or not we should decriminalize abortion. So they brought together a random sample. Some of them were, you know, hardcore pro-life uh, advocates, some of them were pro-choice, and after uh, weeks of deliberation, they, they, they 
did come to a consensus on decriminalizing abortion. They put that to a referendum, and two-thirds um, of the, I think it was two-thirds of 67%, I don't remember, but a, a, a large majority of uh, Irish people voted in favor of decriminalizing uh, abortion, and so it's considered a major success of deliberative democracy. It goes to show it works. So yes, I know, Next objection immediately will be, well, yes, but uh, Ireland is like a small country, 5 million people, and it's very homogeneous. They're all Christian. It's not nearly as diverse as the U.S., and it's not nearly as complicated as a federal state with multiple you know, ethnicities and, and, uh, and a complicated, uh, you know, legacy of uh, racism, of structural racism and all that. It's true, but I'm just saying, you know, there's, pl- you know, we're just at the beginning of this. And so I think entertaining a sense of hope is really important because it's the only way to to get the people on board and, and to get the experiments that need to be tried out. Uh, I think first at the local level, at the state level, before we can even envision anything like it at the federal level. Um, but but the U.S. is you know it's a I always use the metaphor of the the, the the boat or the large ship right it's it's just really hard to to make it change direction. So countries like Ireland or Iceland, which is another country I studied, they're much smaller and, and more nimble in a way. They can they can try things out and fail and and so my hope is that once um, the the works the the work of the Citizens Convention in France. Uh, concludes, and it concludes successfully, hopefully, it will have at least proven that you can do these deliberative experiments in, in a large country like France. After all, France is it's not the U.S., certainly, but it's 67 million people. We're the, large, we're the most multicultural country in Europe, I believe, um, uh, with a, you know, a large Muslim population. Uh, it just, it's just much closer to the U.S. case than Ireland. So if it works in France, then you know, the U.S. can no longer say, oh, that's, that's you know, a social democrat sort of a European dream that will never happen here. And and uh, so that's my hope, that um, eventually this kind of deliberative experiments can be tried out in the U.S. as well, at the large scale. On that note of optimism, should we pause there? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, that was terrific. Thank you so much. Um... Just before you go, um, is there, if readers are, readers, I know what medium I'm in, if uh, listeners want to look at your work or follow you, where should they go? Do you have a website, Twitter handle, anything like that? Website, which is a, uh, well, they can go to my my Yale website, it will redirect them to my uh, Academia page and my personal website, so I think it's a good Okay, terrific. Um, you is... can give them- Twitter handle as well. I post a lot about the citizen convention. Okay, cool. Um, Listen, thank you again for coming on. I really appreciate your time. (laughs) 